Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Tuesday is day six of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The capital, Kyiv, was still in Ukrainian hands as of Monday night. Kharkiv, the country's second largest city, has been under rocket fire. As Russian forces advance into Ukraine, the economic sanctions recently imposed by Western countries are beginning to hit Russia's economy. The ruble's value fell 32%, and there were reports that ATMs were running out of cash. On Sunday, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that he was placing Russia's nuclear defense forces on high alert. Then, on Monday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky sent a delegation to Belarus to negotiate with Russian representatives. I do not really believe in the outcome of this meeting, but let them try, so that later not a single citizen of Ukraine has any doubt that I, as president, tried to stop the war. In a speech on Monday, Zelensky announced that prisoners with military experience will be released to help hold back Russian forces. He also called for immediate membership to the European Union. At least half a million people have fled Ukraine into Poland and other neighboring countries as of Sunday, according to the UN Refugee Agency. Olga and Mark Goncharuk were traveling west, towards the border from Kyiv. Through tears, Mark describes leaving his father, who stayed to help defend the city. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie announced Monday that Canada will send a third weapons shipment to Ukraine. Canada is also ready to accept refugees from the war. Canada will play its part, and of course, we will make sure that Ukrainians seeking refuge will have a place to stay in Canada. The Globe's Nathan Vanderclip recently left Ukraine for neighboring Moldova. He'll tell us about the refugees fleeing across Ukraine's borders and how other countries are responding to the growing crisis. This is The Decibel. Nathan, thanks so much for speaking with us today. You're welcome. So can you just start by telling us where exactly are you right now and, and, and what's it like on the ground there? I'm in Chisinau, the capital of Moldova, which is this tiny little landlocked former Soviet state that sits between Romania and Ukraine and, and has become one of the important exodus paths for people that are currently fleeing Ukraine. And have you actually gotten a chance to be at the border there and to, to see and to, to talk to some of the people that are, that are coming into Moldova? Yes. Yeah. In fact, I was, I was there today, uh, spent some time there. It's, uh, it was cold. It was windy. There were people who were shivering. They'd spent a few hours in line on the other side. Uh, this border crossing is the closest crossing to Odessa, so it's become a real outlet for people from southern Ukraine to leave the country. Odessa uh, experienced some attacks 
on the first day of this war on February 24th, but has not experienced any of the fighting that cities in eastern Ukraine, southeastern Ukraine and, and Kyiv have experienced. Nonetheless, it's an important port city. Uh, there's been attacks on cargo ships. And what that's meant is it's it's led people to leave. And, and of course, um, so there there have been times in the last couple of days where the line to leave there has extended over uh, 10 kilometers. It's moved wow. so slowly that people have walked. I spoke with the prime minister of Moldova and she said she's spoken with people who actually walked there from Odessa, which is more than 50 kilometers to the city center anyways. <laughs> and so it's uh, and, and now I think the scene is probably somewhat similar to the scene at other places, which is that it's a, a large numbers of women and children who are leaving because men have been turned back. Ukraine has barred military-aged men from leaving. It wants them to stay so that they can be called upon to fight. And as a result, you've got uh, a lot of people and a lot of young children who are walking out. What is the process? You mentioned there's a long wait to to cross into the country, but once they get into Moldova, what's happening? Where are they going? Based on the numbers from from today, it's uh, it's over seventy thousand Ukrainians that have entered uh, Moldova. Now, uh, roughly a third of those have left again. What's not clear here is how many people will stay. Um, there's a, a belief that you know Moldova is likely to be a transit point. Um, they're likely to see some number of people stay. How, how big that number is, who knows? But, uh, you know, there's a belief that it's it's likely to be well under half anyways. But the process, I mean, Moldova has really opened its arms to people from Ukraine, at least up till now, which has been kind of remarkable. I mean, they have uh, reduced their requirements for documentation. They have reduced their requirements for COVID um, measures at the border for Ukrainians, and they have effectively sped people through. And what people encounter when they get through to the other side are, you know, there's people there making sandwiches, handing out hot drinks. Um, there are cars that show up with private individuals who are there happy to drive people to Kisinau, which is the capital. It's a two and a half hour drive. And all sorts of people have just come down there with their cars just of their own volition to, to pick people up. And along the way, there's there's all sorts of uh, people who are offering accommodations. I actually, this afternoon, I went to um, a winery. If people have heard of Moldova in Canada. I suspect it's for Moldovan wines. Mm. And I went to the biggest winery in Moldova and they've actually opened up their accommodations in their chateau as well as rented a separate hotel to put up refugees, Ukrainian refugees free of charge. They're feeding them. Uh, it's been just a, a remarkable national response of, of generosity. And you'd mentioned just earlier that about a third of the people who were crossing into Moldova had left again. What exactly did you mean by that? Yeah, so they've entered through a uh, the border with Ukraine and then and then left again, uh, probably through a border with Romania. Moldova's closed its airspace, so it's not possible to fly out of Moldova right now. So people are moving from here by land to the nearest airport in Romania and from there heading elsewhere. So there are people who have family members elsewhere that they're going to see um, or they are working to try to get to other parts of, of uh, Europe where 
either perhaps they see uh, perhaps a, a better opportunity to establish themselves in some way economically or take care of themselves economically uh, or by fear. I mean, one of the things that, that, that at least one person I spoke with today said was, listen, you have Vladimir Putin who is making nuclear threats and Moldova is really close to Ukraine and we want to get as far away from that as we possibly can. Yeah, actually, I do want to ask a little bit, I guess, about the geopolitical aspect of this year, because as you mentioned, a lot of us aren't that familiar with Moldova, but it's between Ukraine and Romania. What's the country's relationship to to Russia, though? Complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's uh, I mean, Moldova is interesting for a couple of reasons, and one of which is that there is perhaps no better place from which to assess the likelihood or the ramifications of of Russian occupation. Um, After and around the time of Moldovan independence um, in uh, sort of the early 90s, there was a war that broke out over a territory that's called Transnistria, which is on the east of the country and ultimately has created a, a breakaway, a splinter state of Transnistria. Um, it's officially still Moldova, but to get there, you, you drive along a road out of the capital, not far, about an hour from the capital, um, and then you reach a checkpoint. And so that's been there uh, for three decades. And, and so that has always uh, created a delicate balance for Moldova, which is a country whose, whose leadership has sought to ensure that it's not angering Russia at the same time as it's sought to try to um, create better ties with with Europe uh, in the name of um, sort of improving its own economic fortunes. Uh, The trade here is overwhelmingly toward Europe as opposed to Russia. uh, But the fact that you have uh, not just these quote-unquote peacekeepers there, but actual Russian troops and and a considerable ammunition depot that is kept in Transnistria has, has always made that uh, a very sort of clear and present, I guess, reality, if not danger, for Moldova. Nathan, you just recently interviewed uh, Moldova's prime minister, Natalia Gavrilitia. What did she tell you, I guess, about how the, the country will handle this number of, of refugees that are, that are coming across its border? Well, they're doing what they can. And this is, uh, she is, she's a, a pro-European prime minister and, and leads a pro-European parliament. And part of that, I think, colors what we are seeing um, because this is a party that has wanted to move towards European Union membership, uh, now sees Russia acting against a country in Ukraine and, and, and in Moldova, of course, um, that, that has created fear about, you know, could, could Moldova be next and is, and is, and has created a new incentive or a new hope that this could propel, um, their, their progress towards membership in, in the European Union. And so, but, but there's, but there's another, I think, interesting wrinkle to this, which is that one of the obstacles, uh, to countries like uh, Moldova from joining the European Union is just this argument that they're not ready. Uh, that listen, you know, you don't have the civil institutions. Um, you don't have uh, a lock on corruption. Uh, you don't have a sufficiently mature democracy. Uh, to join the other group of countries that's in the European Union. And I heard from a number of people here that there's a desire um, 
for Moldova's response to this refugee crisis uh, to be seen by others as an indication of its maturity and its competence. And uh, so we'll see. We're in the early days of this, um, but there has clearly been a, a very rapid effort to help. You know, at the border, there are a number of tents and other um, a sort of services that are set up, um, they're not overwhelmed at all. And part of that is because of the civic response that there's been uh, so much willingness by by Moldovans to sort of take people into their homes, um, as well as sort of, you know, uh, others staying in hotels. And of course, Moldova isn't the only country with refugees. We've also been hearing incidents where Black and South Asian students, primarily students in Ukraine, were facing discrimination as they tried to seek refuge in Poland and cross that border. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, and I have to credit my my colleagues, uh, Paul Waldy and, and Jeff York, for their reporting on this, uh, which was, was really quite striking and eye-opening. Um, but, you know, what they found was students uh, who had spent three days trying to get across that border unable to access proper food and drink, in some cases growing faint as a result, in other cases actually hopping over fences to try to push their way through, um, being told repeatedly as they tried to cross through um, that they had to step aside and wait in a separate line while Ukrainians left. Um, really, um, you know, a, a significant enough issue that um, diplomatic support was was brought in from the Polish side to try to uh, create some resolution. Um, the Ukrainian side said that it would try to address the issue. Um, and uh, so we'll see. There were talks on Monday between Ukraine and, and Russia. Do we expect anything to change, I guess, from those talks, though? Well, we know that the Ukrainian delegation, when they went uh, to the Belarusian border for these talks, said that they were intent on seeking an immediate ceasefire and um, and, and a withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukrainian territory. Uh, we know that while those talks were underway, we saw what seems to be um, horrific attacks on Kharkiv, uh, which is uh, the second largest city in Ukraine. Um, there are images that came out of Kharkiv today that uh, that seem to show the use of cluster munitions in residential areas, and um, um, and 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 we know that the talks uh, wound up with no conclusion, as far as we know, the hostilities continue, but some agreement to have a second series of talks. So, and you know, some indication, at least from the Russian side, that they're. Uh, was uh, at least enough common ground to continue a conversation. So the negotiators on both sides have returned from that border to their capitals uh, for discussions um, with what seems to be an agreement to have a second round of talks at the same place on uh, the Belarusian side of the border with Ukraine at a date that has not yet been determined. And in the coming days, from from what you've seen and what you've been hearing, will countries like Moldova see kind of a continuous flow of people across the border of refugees coming in? Is that the sense that we're getting? I suspect so. I mean, of course, and I've, I've asked that to every official I've met. What are your expectations? And people, I think, quite honestly, are saying we just don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, one of the things I was asking people today was about the uh, store of supplies 
in on the Ukrainian side. And it's, it's clear that some of those uh, in some areas are starting to run low. One woman said that uh, it was getting more difficult to buy staples like flour, that canned goods and other preserves have been sold out of stores in Odessa. There still seems to be some. There's still fuel in Odessa, in fact, one person told me that the gas stations are giving away gas to people who are using it to make Molotov cocktails. Yeah. But, you know, I think one of the big questions is what happens with uh, food and other supplies uh, in Ukraine? Because if those start to run low, people are going to have to leave. And if people ha- gonna, are going to have to leave, uh, we are likely to see much greater numbers of people. Nathan, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us today. And, and please take care. You're welcome. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Michal Stein helped produce this episode. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs>